In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. Omajushri, please accomplish this. So tonight we have two sections. We have a section from the introduction by Donald Lopez. And then a section from the uh, text called the introduction. <laughs> Outline of the text. Where am I? Um, oh. And I circulated a text by Mipom. provide an alternate version. Of a uh, tenants texts that uh, begins, I think, next week. We'll start using that maybe next week or the week after. We start on page 21 tonight, the study of Indian philosophy in India. And um, so I think uh, as we go through, I'll make sure that we all understand the terms. And uh, if you find, if, unless you find it irritating, I'll also stop and see if we can get very familiar with the main teachers and their texts. Not that that, not that, that really means anything, but <laughs> when you become professors of Buddhist philosophy, it'll be very helpful. How was your day today, everybody? Is day okay? Busy, hairy day? Is this the, this is the third week of like autumn, right? Is it settling down? No? Not, it's not autumn yet. It's Oh, it's weekend, I think. yeah, you're right. But like the fall, fall the, semester, you know. It's pitch dark right now. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. And where are, the, where are the crickets? Oh, well, it's cold. I have the window open. I wonder if they're playing tonight. I, I, I'm sure they are, but... <laughs> I think they're way subdued. Maybe okay. Uh, as discussed about the doxography or tenets, genre originated in India, where we find both Hindu and Buddhist examples among Hindu texts. The most well known are the collection of all views and tenets, falsely attributed to, <laughs> I guess they don't know who it's really attributed to, the Vedanta master Shankara. Shankaracharya is a famous Vedantin, right? And they attribute lots of texts to him. Uh, he has an amazing book called Crest Jewel of Discrimination, if you want to read a, a good Vedanta, a classical Vedanta text by Shankaracharya. It's called Crest Jewel of Discrimination. It's very good. 
on the compendium of all views, Sarvadarshana Samgraha by the Vedanta Master Vidyaranya. And uh, let's see if I can skip around six, six, successfully. We don't need to know how many chapters these are and what they cover and don't cover. Um, there's some Ajana Jain work on uh, tenets as well. And among Buddhist doxographical works composed in India, two are of signal importance. The first is The Blaze of Reasoning, Bhava Viveka's prose auto-commentary on his Essence of the Middle Way. Bhava Viveka being about a 5th century Madhyamaka master of the... Hey, nice to see you, Neil. Hey, hey sorry. Glad to be here. I gotta fix that. Sorry, hold on. So you work for a new uh, new organization. Yep. Yep. Legal counsel. That sounds great. Helping kids okay. to get through school. Good for you. I'm enjoying. Right. Thank you. Great. Cool. People are nice. Uh, very nice. Very very nice and very dedicated. Neat. Good for you, man. Congratulations. Um. Bhavaveka is one of the two branches of Madhyamaka. Any guesses which branch he represents, is famous for? What are the two branches of Madhyamaka? There's the... Go for it, just like yell it out. Svatantrika. Say it again. Svatantrika. Yes, Svatantrika. S-V-A, right? And the prasangika. And the prasangika. Yeah. What do they mean, swatantrika and prasangika? Um, <laughs> consequentialists. Consequentialists. Which one is that? Prasangika. Which one is that? Prasangika. Prasangikas are the consequentialists, and the others are the are the inconsequentials. Are inconsequential. <laughs> Not non-consequential. <laughs> They're not consequential. Um, the other ones, what does the word mean? Uh, tantra. What is tantra? Swa tantrika. Swa means what? Oh, I don't remember the literal translation. They're the ones that say things. Swabhava. <laughs> what does swabhava mean? Becoming? Yeah, yeah. Say it, Mary Beth. It's like the self, right? Self, yeah. Swa is self. So, so swabhava is self nature. Swa tantrika is self tantra. What is tantra? We know is continuity. continuity or thread, but it's also like I'm wearing my purple t shirt tonight. Um, but you, I don't have any color, right? <laughs> Swa tantra. Tantra is power, mm. own power. So, uh, uh, autonomous syllogisms, the school that is boldly presents autonomous syllogisms about things as if they exist and can be syllogized. And then Prasanga say, refuse to put forward any, any common locus of uh, discussion, but merely pick apart other people's arguments. Very irritating people to have around. <laughs> Okay, so Bhavaveka is of the first ilk, Svatantrika, and his main text was uh, 
the essence of the middle way. And his commentary on that is the blaze of reasoning, uh, which has all sorts of detail on the different schools written in the sixth century. Oh, sixth, not fifth. Okay. He deals with six schools for Hindu <coughs> and two Buddhist. Shravaka, he sums up every, uh, the two non-Mahayana schools in Yogacara. Interesting. So he presents Shravaka and Yogacara. So he must consider himself a Yogacara. That's bizarre. Isn't that weird? I didn't catch that earlier. These are bracketed by chapters in which he presents. Oh, okay. His no, because yeah, he's, it says his own Madhyamaka position. On a range of topics. Thus, the first three chapters deal respectively with the aspiration for to enlightenment, bodhicitta, the most important thing in all of Mahayana Buddhism, the vows of the sage, Muni Vrata, and the knowledge of reality, Tatwa Jnana. After his chapters on the various opponents, schools, he concludes with two chapters, one on the proof of the Buddha's omniscience, Sarvajna City, followed by a chapter of praise of the Buddha, Stuti Lakshana. Among the chapters on his opponents, his opponents, the longest is devoted to the mimosas. The second uh, Buddhist work is the massive compendium of principles composed some two centuries later by the 8th century Madhyamaka scholar Shantarakshita, one of the 17 masters of Nalanda. What is Shantarakshita also famous for? He's famous for being for Nalanda master. He's famous for writing this book, but what else? Where else does he come up in the history of Buddhism? So like, he is he the one that told the king that he should get Padmasambhava to do the job? Yeah, what, a, what an important role in the history of Tibetan Buddhism, huh? He was invited to Tibet by the king of Tibet who wanted to bring Buddhism into the country. The king's name was Tri Songdetsen, which is very hard to spell. Uh, Tri Songdetsen. And uh, he asked who was, he sent somebody to Nalanda and asked for the greatest scholar. And they said, Shantarakshita. And he said, I want him. And he brought him to Tibet and then. Uh, he started teaching and ordained monks and uh, started building monastery. And there was a lot of local opposition, uh, couched, which is recounted in the way of, oh, the Bun deities took it apart at night and they would build it during the day and then it was dissembled every night. And so he's the one that said, oh, you need a great tantric master. The best is Padmasambhava. And the king sent his emissaries and invited Padmasambhava. So Shantarakshita writes this text, I think before he goes to Tibet, but who knows. Maybe he was on the way, he had a lot of time on his hands. Uh, it contains, this is a good one, 3,646 verses in which the views of the major philosophical schools of the day are presented and critiqued. The Shankya, which turns out, Sankhya, sorry, which turns out to be atheistic, which is sort of interesting, we'll delve into later. Shaiva, the theistics, um, Sankhya, Lokayata, followers of Brahma. I, I think it's saying that there's an atheistic Sankhya and a theistic Sankhya. 
yeah, there's one of each. Yeah, and there's also an atheistic Shaiva. And then there's the followers of the Vedas, Vaisheshya Kanyaya, Mimamsa, Nigranta, which are the Jains and followers of the Upanishads, Vedanta. Among the Buddhist schools, the Vatsiputriya, the so-called proponents of a person who asserted the existence of an inexpressible person are also subjected to critique. So there's this one school of Buddhism of the 18 that says there's a, a, a person, there is a person, there is, and uh, they were criticized for believing in a self, but they said there's a person, not a self, was their defense, and uh, that it's inexpressible, so they couldn't talk about it. <laughs> when they were questioned, like, what do you mean? The, the ultimate cop-out. <laughs> except that we, we honor, what's the guy who uh, we honor for not having said anything, the one you were talking about last week? Right, that, for Malakirti. You know, yeah. So, so sometimes it's okay and sometimes it's not, right? Right, right. But he speaks a lot on other occasions, so that sort of makes up for it. And that makes his silence profound, I guess. Uh, let's see. Shantarakshita's disciple Kamala Shila provided a lengthy prose commentary where the names and positions of various proponents of these schools are identified. So what is Kamala Shila famous for? The Bhavanakrama? Yeah, he wrote this amazingly wonderful text on meditation for the Tibetans called the Bhavanakramas. And bhavana means cultivation, mental cultivation. And krama means stages. So it's the stages of meditation in three parts. And we've gone through uh, part two. We went through in person at the uh, Alliance Center last spring or something like that. Someday, at some point. Um, as such, the work offers detailed insight into the philosophical landscape of 8th century India, providing a sense of which schools the Buddhists saw as their opponents. Noteworthy that over 40% of Shantarakshita's verses are devoted to critiquing the mimosas, meaning that Buddhist thinkers over the course of several centuries regarded them as their primary rivals. That is cool. It's like, what, what were their views? And you don't hear about them anymore. You hear about Vedantins and, and some of the others. But in the, uh, let's see, then it goes into some Hindu stuff. Well, in the collection of all views and tenets, the Shankara were correct. By the 8th century, we have a Hindu master dividing the Buddhist schools into the four that would be known in Tibet, the Vaibhashika, Sautranta, Yoga, Charma, Yamaka. And this list also appears in a Buddhist philosophical treatise in an Atantra both of unknown date. The fourfold list and its hierarchy are so familiar in Tibetan context, easy to forget that it was not always the case. We know from the account of Zhuangzhong. Anybody speak Chinese here? Well, I would just say Zhang rather than Zhang because there's no H. So Zhuangzhong, maybe? Say it again. Zhuangzhong. Zhuangzhong. Thank you. The Yogacara was the dominant school at Nalanda during his time there, Dharmapala, a Yogacara scholar whose works would be influential in China. And Dharmapala, by the way, along with Chogyam Trungpa are the only two Buddhists ever to present the skandhas as a progressive uh, 
sequentially progressive um, uh, uh, happening. <laughs> all other Buddhists present the skandhas as simultaneously, that all the skandhas arise simultaneously. And as we know, Trungpa Rinpoche talks about them happening in sequence, right? Form, then feeling, and so forth. And apparently Dharmapala also taught this way. Uh, a Yogacara scholar whose works would be influential in China had recently been the abbot of Nalanda and his disciple Xuanzang's <laughs> teacher. Sheila uh, Bajra was the leading scholar at the monastery, at least according to Xuanzang's account. Xuanzang. Xuanzang. Yeah, it keeps the no second syllable simple. Yeah, yeah. Zong. <laughs> Xuanzangs. The four schools of tenets in Tibet were seen as a hierarchy in the sense that the Sautrantika is more sophisticated and can defeat the Vaibhashika and so on for Chittamacha Madhyamaka. However, this is not simply a case of philosophical bragging rights as discussed before the movement to the four schools. I'm sorry, as, as discussed later at <laughs> the conclusion. The movement through these schools is regarded as a progression in the sense of a ladder or stairway with each school seen as a step to the next the profundity and subtlety of each level only evident by having understood and appreciated the prior level this approach has a long history in buddhism in the pali tradition we find references to this term called step-by-step -step instruction that i've seen translated as stepwise instruction in which the buddha anu pubikata Anupubhikata, whatever, in which the Buddha would begin by teaching the karmic benefits of generosity and morality, including rebirth in heaven, before explaining the dangers of attachment to the objects of senses. He would then teach the benefits of renunciation before setting forth the Four Noble Truths and the Peace of Nirvana. What is Nirvana? A band? <laughs> uh, it's a, like a... a it's a, a restaurant, it's a resort. It's also a perfume. It's a band, it's a perfume. <laughs> and it's something that one shouldn't get too attached to. Right? Cling to, right? What is nirvana in Buddhism? Like, why do we say the pari nirvana of Chogyam Trungpa That means he completely passed away into nirvana. Is that euphemistical? Or do we mean that he, he actually entered into nirvana? when he died. Does that mean that he entered Nirvana before he died? Any ideas? It's only one of the most basic concepts in Buddhism is Nirvana. What's the there's many different meanings for it too. Oh, well, give me one or two. Um, well, there's the, what, with and without remainder? Is that, or is that? Those are types. Okay, but those are types. So that's great. So what is Nirvana with remainder? I think that's when you're still alive. And you're still alive, and what happens? I mean, we're all still alive. Does that mean we're in nirvana? Uh, I'm sorry. The one, uh, I guess, achieves nirvana while one is still alive. And what so, does achieve nirvana mean? What is nirvana? When I get there, I'll let you know. Cessation, uh, <laughs> liberation. Well, again, that's that's why I said there's different definitions. Some of them, you know, look at it as just like give me any, give me, give me some possibilities. Neil gave me liberation. Do I hear a second on that? So, nirvana is liberation. Liberation from 
samsara. Liberation from samsara. Also known as cyclic existence. Cool. And uh, so uh, is there any other sense that nirvana is used? Is that the same as cessation? Is that the same as cessation? That's a good question, yeah. And then what is, okay, so there's cessation, there's liberation, there's nirvana. What about the English term enlightenment? Like nirvana is a Sanskrit term. Cessation is an English term. That's naroda in Sanskrit, right? And then uh, what did we say? There was liberation. Liberation is moksha in Sanskrit. What is enlightenment in Sanskrit? Bodhi. Bodhi. I was going to say, yeah. Is, Thank you. Would it's you say those are equivalents? I mean, oh, awake. is awake. Awake. Yeah, but it, it's actually translated as enlightenment. The attained Bodhi. We don't usually see the Sanskrit given when they talk about enlightenment because it's the term enlightenment is often used in more like colloquial things as opposed to um, I don't know we don't we don't see it them give the Sanskrit but that is the Sanskrit so are, are you sort of suggesting that Nirvana doesn't have a direct English equivalent no yet. no 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 i'm not at all i'm just trying to figure out what is and uh, what is the relationship between enlightenment and nirvana well i mean sometimes they talk about nirvana as peace right isn't that in the even in the marks nirvana is oh yeah peace? we had it right here it's just it just said it the peace of nirvana right so um what is the relationship between enlightenment and nirvana Just keep it simple. No, you know, <laughs> if you become well, enlightened, you experience nirvana, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Or are you beyond both nirvana and samsara? Okay. Well, there's different views of of this whole thing. Um, so in the early, say again. Do you have omniscience? Ah, uh, do you have omniscience? So. Uh, when we look at the map of the path, right, the first, the, the third path of seeing is known as liberation from samsara. In the sense that one, um, one no longer is subject to the, the uh, obscurations that tie one to rebirth and samsara. Which is a little, it's a little vague because in the early system of the Shravakas, you still uh, will be born for 16 lifetimes <clears throat> if you're just a stream enterer, which is the path of seeing. Whereas if you're a uh, once returner, that means you will be born one more time. So that's a more advanced achievement. And then a non returner means that when you die, that's it. And then an arhat means you've achieved it in this lifetime. So it being uh, enlightenment, liberation. So in the early tradition, they don't really distinguish between enlightenment, uh, between liberation of, sorry, they don't really distinguish between the enlightenment of an arhat and the 
and the omniscience of a Buddha in a big way. They acknowledge that the Buddha has a completely different level of achievement, uh, but they don't really map it as two different stages that are possible for the same human being other than the Buddha. In the Mahayana path, liberation is in, is the first stage of enlightenment that occurs on the third path of seeing, which is also where one experiences the first bhumi. And then Buddhahood is omniscience. And nirvana, they say the nirvana of a Buddha, and they say the nirvana of uh, a third level bodhisattva or a first level bodhisattva. So enlightenment is nirvana, but there's different stages of nirvana. And then in the early tradition, there's what uh, Cynthia mentioned, there's nirvana with traces or with uh, <clears throat> remainder which is while you're still alive the remainder is refers to the karmic remainder of having a body and a mind until you die and then you experience nirvana without remainder so once again nirvana is enlightenment and in the early tradition, there's not really different stages of enlightenment other than during the lifetime and at death. And in the Mahayana tradition, there's two different stages of enlightenment, the third path of seeing and the omniscience of a Buddha. And, and Nirvana is the deathless, uncompounded, ineffable, uh, undescribable, peace beyond all suffering so then why do we say um why do we say not to be attached to nirvana nor stuck in samsara what is that getting at uh whether you're dealing with individual liberation or working with helping others yeah, explain that a little so the um if you're i guess if you're sort of stuck in nirvana then you're kind of more stuck in <clears throat> you're sort of more you may have achieved individual liberation but the bodhisattva ideal the mahayana ideal is to um go on from there to sort of remain in the engaged and and try to bring all sentient beings to that same um enlightenment <clears throat> and so they, they keep taking rebirth, even though theoretically they don't need to, because they've experienced enlightenment, nirvana. So they're experience, they, then they come up with the idea of a non-dwelling uh, nirvana, non-abiding nirvana. That nirvana is not dependent on whether you're alive or dead, and that you can be in nirvana within while you're born in a human or other forms, you can still be in nirvana. And so they're not, uh, they're not escaping into the peace of nirvana, which would be complete dissolution. But instead they enter into samsara, but they're not of samsara, the image of the lotus, of the bodhisattva that is, uh, comes from the mud 
of samsara and rises up through the pond, the filth of the of the silty pond up to the top of the water and blossoms as a beautiful lotus on top of samsara, but it's still connected to samsara. So then what about the Buddha? Has the Buddha given up his bodhisattva or her bodhisattva vow by entering par nirvana? No. Why? It's, so he takes still, birth? Yeah, he's Buddha still, takes I mean, birth they're still maybe taking birth in various different forms. Have you ever heard of anybody being an uh, incarnation or an emanation of the Buddha? Uh, I guess it's not like a tulku thing. No, it isn't, isn't. It's interesting. They have all sorts of other people. What about Padmasambhava? Has, any, has anyone ever heard of a Padmasambhava rebirth? I think so, right? Yes. Yes. And also, didn't in the in the wheel of life, there's you know Buddha's in every realm, supposedly, right? Uh huh. So did he go to a different realm, due time, in some other realm? Well, I mean, when you're at that level, you're able to manifest in lots in hundreds or thousands of different forms, right? Those are some of the cities that come along as you reach those various stages. Yeah, so that's getting towards the sort of traditional response or answer is that the Buddha has infinite manifestations now, and none of none of them can be like pointed to as being the or a specific one. But basically, every every tulku, every other emanation is embodied by the Buddha, something like that, vaguely. Okay. Good. So now when people ask you what nirvana is, what is nirvana? It's the Buddhist version of enlightenment, right? Isn't there also a suggestion that nirvana and samsara are the same thing? There's a suggestion. So what is that about? Well, if you understand nirvana correctly, you wouldn't differentiate it from your current experience of samsara. Yeah, and why is that? Because it's really just a question of a motivating dynamic rather than a state. Does it have anything to do with how you view samsara? Totally. Yes, it has everything to do with how you view. Yeah, so what's the difference? So when we're in samsara, it seems like it's very different from nirvana, right? <laughs> Only because of the way we think about it. And what's what do you what does a, a Buddha think about samsara? Well, I guess I think they don't think about it the way we do. They experience it very differently. It's they, I don't know that there's a distinction from between samsara and nirvana or Buddha. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Cynthia, I I guess I would think that the way they think about it is that that's the experience of beings that haven't reached enlightenment yet that essentially their view of it is that those are people beings who are suffering in their delusions in their delusion of thinking that there is samsara so when you enter into nirvana you realize there never was samsara and that's the inseparability of samsara and nirvana not that there never was samsara it's just that 
It's two sides of the same coin. I don't know. I think it's more like one side of the coin disappears. Well, maybe I'm a misunderstanding of Chinese philosophy. It isn't like the yin and the yang. Yin and yang are not Buddhist philosophy. I know. I know they're not, but I'm just drawing an analogy. They're well, so the question is, are they dependent on each other? I mean, I think in that sense, the analogy is, you know, like most opposites in samsara, there's, you know, that's relative and dependent. Right. So does, are samsara and nirvana a duality that depend on each other? That's, I think that's one way to look at it. If there wasn't samsara, would there be nirvana? There would only be nirvana. Can nirvana exist without one experiencing samsara in earlier life? Yeah, yeah. Nirvana is all there is. There is no samsara. There it only is nirvana. So you seem to be proclaiming that as an ultimate view. That's right. <laughs> Is, what is the, is there, I mean, are there not different views on that? I mean, I've certainly. They can't be a du they can't be a duality. Only from the point of samsara, they duality. Nirvana is unconditioned. You know, to say that unconditioned phenomena are the opposite of conditioned phenomena is a fallacy because there's no characteristics to the unconditioned. So they can't be, they, they're not a phenomena. So there's only a duality if you're still in samsara. An apparent duality. <clears throat> yeah. Good. Glad we cleared that one up. <laughs> apparent meaning conditional reality. Samsara being conditional reality. Yeah. Yes. Apparently so. Apparently so. <laughs> <laughs> We'll, we'll revisit this. <laughs> uh, let's see. Study of Indian philosophy in Tibet, despite the almost complete absence of Hindu philosophers with no concerns about losing patronage, the Tibetans were obsessed with understanding uh, Tibetan Hindu philosophy. <laughs> they called this Gaiden Chupel. Chupel was called the, the Sankhya Abbot because what they would do when they debated is they would take positions of various schools, even though they didn't believe in them, just like to hone their debating skills. And he apparently was so good that he could take the position of Sankhya and, de and de defeat many other people. Um, Buddhism in Tibet entered in the seventh century and uh, let's see on page 24 some of the first works composed in tibet by tibetans rather were on tenets and he lists a couple of them and there was the persecution era by uh by the evil king um what was the evil king's name damn 
Long Dharma. Long Dharma, thank you. Lang Dharma. And uh, then we have the Resurgence by Vincent Zongpo. The fall of the empire in 842 and a resurgence in the, by the end of eight, 900, so about 100 years, 958 or so. And the arrival of Atisha, 1042, remember that number. There were a number of important texts and he lists those. Uh, subsequent centuries, there's texts on the tenets by Sakya Pandita, Wangchen Rabjamp, as we know, and then it becomes a specialty of the Galupas. They, they just go wild on it. Started with the second Dalai Lama getting Yansu composing the evocatively entitled Ship That Sails the Ocean of Tenet Systems, which is available in translation in a book called Teachings of the Second Dalai Lama. And uh, the Dalai Lama in his introduction mentions four well-known Tenet texts by Tibetan authors, and this gentleman, uh, Donald Lopez, goes through them, which we don't need to do. Let's skip along. And uh, on page 25, first full chapter, more succinct but still quite substantial text, was composed by a young incarnate lama that Jiamyang Shepa, let's see, uh, skip something. Uh, Jiamyang Shepa is like their their heroes so at the bottom of 24. The other three works discussed by His Holiness. The first is a presentation of tenets, uh, apt title, a work in verse completed in 1689 by Jamyan Shepa. So that's one of the most famously uh, famous tenets texts in the Galupa world. And on 25, there was a um, there's a summary of it called The Clear Presentation of Tenets by a gentleman named Chankya Rolpe Dorje, and which is translated in Tupten Jinpa's Library of Tibetan Classics. I was almost thinking, I was thinking of using that book instead, but here we are. Hopefully this is better because it presents like all these alternative views from a more current point of view. We'll see. And uh, let's see. And then finally, they have the Crystal Mirror Philosophical Systems, Tuken Lo Sangchuki Nima, which I think is the one translated in the book called Buddhist Philosophy by Daniel Kozort that we've used in the past. About this volume, oh, this has some interesting points. Uh, this volume is very much a part of this long and venerable tradition. However, it differs in a number of important ways. Um, let's see. On 26th, this volume, again, this volume is very different. One of the main consequences of the diaspora that began in 59 has been a re renaissance Renaissance, sorry, of Sanskrit studies by Tibetan monks who, for the first time in centuries, have been able to study Sanskrit with Indian scholars in India. Tibetans used to do this back in the early periods of Buddhism in Tibet. They would study Sanskrit with uh, Indian Sanskritists, either in India or in Tibet, and up until like about the 14th century, and then that petered out. Um, 
but uh, many of them have gone to Banaras Hindu University at Varanasi, not far from what is called the Central Institute of Higher Tibetan Studies in Sarnath, which is what the Dalai Lama helped establish when all the Tibetan scholars came out. And they wanted to train the younger scholars, the younger Tulkus and monks and so forth. And uh, they created this institute, which is a, you know, sort of like Nairobi Institute, just like a Buddhist university. It's accredited and it's actually, they study all sorts of things. Um, in this, the Tibetan monks translated from Sanskrit into Tibetan a number of important Indian philosophical works not previously known, i.e. from the non-Buddhist schools of India. And so this volume draws upon those, has the benefit of those. And uh, let's see. That's the first major point. And then the second major point, Tibetan, the next paragraph, doxographical literature, a great majority of the pages over the centuries have been devoted to Buddhist schools. That is also the case in this volume, the standard four. Um, however, the, uh, even among the presentations of Buddhist schools, the problem of representation by the opponent has been present, especially when it comes to Vaibhashika problem of representation there's nobody actually represents the Vaibhashika school who they can like actually have uh, them clarify or confirm or deny what they actually hold as tenets it's named after its fundamental text the great exegesis of the Abhidharma it's known as the Mahavibhasha the great exegesis one of the most important works longest works in the history of Indian Buddhist philosophy uh, presenting a wide range of positions positions in the vast world of Abhidharma, and it's presented from the perspective of the Sarvastivada school, which is uh, one of a few schools that's now called Vaibhashika. Um, it's in both Sanskrit and Pali. Unfortunately, it's not translated into English. However, this, he says that uh, there's uh, significant excerpts from it, quotes from it in here, which is nice. When scholars speak of Buddhist philosophy, especially earlier, they're often referring to Abhidharma, one of the three pitaka, three baskets of the Buddha's teachings. What are the other two baskets? Easter and... Vinaya and um, uh, Sutra. and Sutra, right. Vinaya, Sutra, and Abhidharma. Thank you very much. And they're often, uh, uh, Abhidharma is referred to as advanced Dharma, special Dharma. It's a collection of texts generally regarded as having appeared after the death of the Buddha. Although there's this famous legendary story that the Buddha taught the Abhidharma to his deceased mom in one of the several Buddhist heavens. <laughs> there was this one rainy season where he went and visited his mom in one of the heaven realms and taught her Abhidharma. And uh, how are, this part I've never heard before. According to the story, the Buddha would descend to earth each day to repeat these teachings to the monk Shariputra, which is really odd because there's this famous event of the descent from heaven, of the, the heaven of the 33 is where she lived. 
That was her address, actually. And uh, it's depicted in many Tonkas, and they celebrate the day. And it's one of those days where you like good deeds get multiplied by like a zillion times. And if if you do Nundro, like on that day, you're basically done with your Nundro. Those of you who do Nundro, it's a good day to do Nundro. And um, they make a big deal over his descent from heaven. A big, like, escalator, like, appeared out of the sky. You got to look at the paintings, the Tonka paints. It looks just like an escalator. It's like this fabulous stairway appears out of, out of a cloud, and it's, like, barely touching the earth, and he's walking down it. It's really a sort of a bizarre thing. It's like uh, from the Academy Awards or something. I don't know. That's um, that song, Stairway. <laughs> Stairway of Heaven, right? Um, I bet you could Google this while we're talking and look at it. So you're saying uh, the issue is the issue of whether he came every day because it. I, I if he came every it. day, then why would they make a big deal a, a, about his final coming back to Earth? Because he probably used a little more subtle form of travel, like tessering or something. <laughs> Tesserine? What is okay, I mean, he did teach this stuff to Shariputra. That that part is accurate, right? How do we know that? Well, I read something about it actually just recently, and I can't remember where it was, but it was just in the last week or so. So when you were questioning it, I was thinking, well, what's the question? Is it whether he taught Shariputra this stuff or how frequently he did it? Did he do it while he was teaching his mom? Or I did he do he it did, afterwards? I think he did it right. afterwards. Right. Yeah, that part I, I don't remember. Yeah. He would have saved a lot on gas. Again, tessering, what's the matter? <laughs> the Abhi Darbuk texts present a wide range of opinions on a wide range of topics. And uh, let's see. The Mahavibhasha, the Great Exegesis, an important work as a source of Buddhist positions. And it's the opponent of uh, some of the most famous philosophers in Buddhism, including Nagarjuna and Vasubandhu. Vasubandhu critiqued the uh, Mahavibhasha, in particular in his auto-commentary to the root verses of his treasury of knowledge. For a variety of reasons, however, it, it has had relatively little influence out of India. Uh, it was not translated into Chinese until this late date. And uh, which was done by our our friend Xuanzang, never translated into Tibetan nor English at this point, um, because it was huge. Vasubandhu summarized it into the Treasury of Abhidharma. He presents the Vibhashika positions in verse and then critiques them in his prose commentary. And the verse argument general one should look not at the great exegesis as the authoritative source on the Abhidharma, but to the Buddhist statements in the sutras, hence the name Sautrantika, followers of the sutras, as opposed to Vibhashika's followers of the exegesis. Um, <laughs> it's important to note that Vasubandhu's attack on the adherence of the great exegesis was not fatal. <laughs> the monk Sankabhadra wrote a lengthy rebuttal entitled uh, Abhidharma, Nyaya Anusara, which uh, rebuts, refutes uh, Vasubandhu's kosha. And anyway, it was too long. That's a that's a that's a good uh, some, that's a history lesson to remember. If your book is too long, it's likely not to become very well known.
case any of you are writing, thinking of writing your novel, your book, novels, biographies. Um, it was translated on 28. We learned that it was translated in the 20th century of a Chinese monk named Fa Jun. Uh, translated it along with a number of other important Indian Tibetan works into Chinese, including Chandra Kirti's Madhyamaka Avatar and Songkhapa's Great Treatise, Lamrim Chenmo. And then he went the other way to uh, repay the Tibetans. He gave them the Mahavi Basha. One question given, that, that yeah. one in the prior paragraph, that lovely hailstones on the kosha, is that saying that was the original title of the rebuttal to the exegesis? That's right. Hailstones. I, I love that name. <laughs> that is pretty good. I miss that. Thank you very much for pointing out that. Hailstones. That's like uh, wrath and fury beyond you or something, the wrath of God. And so that was actually the one written by this monk. Sangabhadra, yeah. Okay. Who, uh, a rebuttal. <laughs> And then when uh, Dalai Lama was in uh, Beijing at the invitation of Mao Zedong in 54, he was presented with a copy and so on and so forth. Another way, the next paragraph in which the present volume differs from the traditional is its structure. Tibetan texts are generally synthetic. The author organizing various positions under three headings, the basis, the path, and the fruition. The section on the basis sets forth the school's positions on a host of questions on ontology and epistemology, two things. Indeed, the section is often divided into two, beginning with the objects of experience, which was the first book in the series, uh, before proceeding to epistemology, which was captured in the second and third books. Sorry, the second book of the series, the second and third course that we had, before proceeding to epistemology. Um, I just said that, sorry. The former category would include the school's delineation of the two truths, conventional truths and ultimate, and the latter would include the school's position on valid means of knowledge. Next section would deal with soteriology, the path to liberation, which is equivalent to enlightenment, by the way, from rebirth or and nirvana. It would typically set forth both the path of the disciple who becomes an arha and the path of the bodhisattva who culminates in Buddhahood. Each of these has a number of stages, occurs over many lifetimes, and it's followed by a section on the fruition, the goal of the path. Here one finds the discussion of nirvana, the goal of the path of fruition. So that's an easy way of defining nirvana. It's the fruition of the Buddha's path. Uh, as well as the various bodies and qualities of the Buddha. He's got multiple bodies. However, since the focus of the present volume is philosophy, for the most part, encompassed under the traditional category of the basis, the path and fruit are not set forth in a systematic way here, which is a little unfortunate. Um, we've seen the, the different paths in other courses, but I think I'll uh, add a class at the end where I'll pull together some material on the path in the different schools, the path and the fruit in the different schools in a summary manner. So we can sort of complete that picture. 
because in Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, it's asserted that Buddhahood can only be achieved via the tantric path. Was that surprising to anyone? Yes. <laughs> that is interesting, isn't it? It's funny how clearly he states it, like categorically, right? That's totally not true. Well. <laughs> Isn't it? I mean, I, I think or is, is that true. their school's view? It's certainly the Galupa view, but I think it's actually the view of all this, the Tibetan schools. It, it, I mean, if they put the word quickly, wouldn't that make it more representative of all of the... The way the Tantra portrays the path between the uh, difference in the path between uh, Mahayana and Vajrayana is that in Mahayana you can achieve the Vajra-like Samadhi, but you can't you can't um, go through the Vajra-like Samadhi, or actually, what would it be? Actually enter fully into that Samadhi without gaining Abhisheka from the Buddhas of all of three times in ten directions. So, so does that mean that Sutra Mahamudra is a dead end? <laughs> well, all... Uh, and Essence Mahamudra also? Um, that's a dead end question. is a strong word. That's yeah, a strong dead question. end. Oh, I think that seems to be what I mean, you're saying it doesn't go all the way? Well, it, it goes to, uh, all the way means going to uh, the fourth Abhisheka. Isn't that, well, wait a minute, it, it, it seems like it's a little bit like science, you know, defining the term. Isn't that defining it from a tantric point of view? Well, this is the tantric view. Right, but... Is that the only view that is held within all of Tibetan Buddhism? I think so. So they actually, even though they emphasize the three yana, the three yanas, you're saying that they assume that you have to do all three and there's no alternative. Yes. And Mahamudra the, and Dzogchen. The uh, other two are not ends in themselves. Hinayana and Mahayana are not a complete path to Buddhahood. In, the, in themselves. Because I thought that they, they, when they talk about the difference between Mahayana and Vajrayana, they talk about it in terms of uh, difference in skillful means, right? In method. But that would... Yeah, they do. But this, this sounds like a very different view than... I mean, I'm, I'm no expert here, but I'm a little shocked to hear this. Yeah, it is shocking, isn't it? And I'm not sure I buy That's it cool. either. It's cool. Uh, let's let's take on researching yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. I'm it's sorry. A, I don't want to disrupt. No, this is a cool topic. I think. I think it's a really neat topic. It's we cute. should we should uh, delve into this a little bit. I mean, I don't think Gampopo was trying to lead people astray, was he? No, no, no. See, so what I was trying to explain was that uh, the the what the tantric path does is it gives you the four abhishekas. And the four Abhishekas lead you to the fourth Abhisheka, which is the Abhisheka word, which is where transmission happens. Transmission of pointing out the nature of mind. 
but there are other contexts in which that happens. So, not in Mahayana. In Mahamudra, it does. That, right. So that's, that's what why I'm saying. saying. I that's why I'm saying I don't buy it that it says via the tantric path. Well, they consider Mahamudra tantric. And Dzogchen also. Yes. What's the definition of tantra then? Higher yanas. Really? Higher than Mahayana. Higher than Mahayana. Yanas that are higher than Mahayana. So they're not. So when you're saying tantric, it, you mean it does not imply the specific types of skillful means that. No, they. Uh, if you say tantric, that that, in a broad sense, includes creation, completion, Dzogchen, and Mahamudra. Okay, so it, in other words, it doesn't. They're not saying that creation stage is required, necessary. No. Okay, no. that's where that was what's misleading to me because it, that's what it sounded like it was saying. But if you define, Dzogchen, or well, Galupas would say that. Galupas would say creation stage is required. But uh, Dzogchenpas, obviously, would not. There are reasons why we're not Galukpas, aren't there? <laughs> Do you live near a hospital? No, I live in New York City. It's amazing the amount of sirens that you have. This is, you know, it, it can be worse. Yeah. Well, sirens, not usually. It's usually more horn honking that's the more prevalent thing. But that's yeah, yeah. yeah. Sirens are just an occasional thing in the city. You've been out of the city, well, too long. long no, <laughs> it's very long impressive how relaxed you are about all the sirens. That's great. Anyway, this is a big siren. This siren went off, and, and definitely that that got you. <laughs> That's a good one. So let's work on this, okay? You send me a note. No, you it's Google okay. I think it. I understand. I think you just answered it. That I I was taking, I guess, the narrower definition of. Of but it it, it, it it sort of goes back to the way they describe how the Buddha achieved enlightenment. And remember, in certain classes, we've looked at the difference, like like when we read uh, Long Chenpa's Precious Treasury of Philosophical Systems. At the beginning, he has the life of the Buddha from different schools' points of view. And he presents the Vajrayana point of view. And the Vajrayana point of view is that the Buddha... Uh, um, in order to f achieve the Vajra-like Samadhi, he went in, into trance, and then the uh, Buddhas of the Ten Directions gave him Abhisheka. <laughs> and then there's also this funny story where um, in the Galupa they believe that in order to achieve complete enlightenment, you need to go through this uh, um, deity pra uh, practice with a consort. And um, so does that mean that monks are not eligible or have to break their vows? Unless, uh, well, what what Tsongkhapa did to set the example was he didn't achieve complete Buddhahood until the uh, bardo. So he did it in Barda when his vows had ended, his monastic vows had ended. And so he found a consort in the Bardo? He did. <laughs> <laughs> I 
it's it's called what is it bardo match <laughs> anyway because it's generally held that Buddhist Tantra offers unique practices for progressing on the path, it accepts or at least assumes the philosophical position of Madhyamaka, or in some cases, Chittamatra. Although, sorry, again, because the focus of the present volume is on philosophy, there's no systematic discussion of Tantra here. Final point of how it differs, differs from more traditional texts as mentioned above. Uh, texts on tenets where the author was Hindu, Jain, or Buddhist tended to be polemical with the positions of other schools presented as positions to be refuted and their proponents as opponents to be defeated. Thus, Buddhists would seek to refute the idea of a creator deity of several of the Buddhist Hindu schools. Hindus would seek to point out the host of problems with the Buddhist doctrine of no self, especially its implications for rebirth. And everyone would criticize the Lokayatas, who were materialists, for their denial of both moral efficacy and rebirth. There was often much at stake in these refutations, which is one reason why the genre of Siddhanta tenets flourished in India for so long. And uh, let's see, blah, 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 they were had a, a higher purpose, which was helping understand as um, develop philosophical sophistication and critical faculties. These sort of polemics have not been included in the present volume, which is good, which takes the more modern, familiar modern form of a detailed survey as opposed to a like a critique or a attack rather. And let's see, we went to 34, overview of the text, introduction by the Dalai Lama. In the middle, the next paragraph, uh, uh, the hallmark of a Buddhist philosophy is the doctrine of no self. He notes that the traditional criterion of what constitutes a Buddhist philosophical school is the acceptance of the four seals. All conditioned things are impermanent. All contaminated things are of the nature of suffering. What do they mean by contaminated? What are they contaminated by? Well, isn't that somewhat the same as con conditioned? Why would they say contaminated then? I've always wondered that myself. All right, contaminated. <clears throat> well, they're different. They're parts. They're like made of different things together, not here. All contaminated things are of the nature of suffering. That's the first one, is the conditioned phenomena are permanent. Contaminated, what are they contaminated by? Bacteria? Is it Klesha? Klesha, they're contaminated by Klesha. Okay. Sorry, Kevin? They're not unitary. Um, um, aren't they speaking about um, truth? Um, they're not um, ultimate, unitary, or are they talking about... That's, that's the next one. That's the next one on ego. Mm. So the third one is all phenomena are empty and devoid of a self, and nirvana, oh. which is the goal of the Buddhist path, sometimes called enlightenment, sometimes called liberation, sometimes called omniscience. It's true peace. 
everybody accepted this with different interpretations. And then he goes through the rest of the book, skipping this introductory essay. There's the development of Indian philosophy. It offers an overview. And um, goes, then he goes through the various, on top of page 31, the various Indian non-Buddhist schools. Examples of those who believe in a creator but do not accept rebirth are not named but would presumably include Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. So your uh, projects for this course, you have to all do a project that's due at the end of the course, is you have to develop a set of tenets for one of the Western theistic religions of your choice. Christianity, Judaism, or Islam, and then present your tenets at the end of this, the semester and defend your tenets. So are we doing this in the sense of the basis that he talked about earlier? The... Exactly, yeah, try to do it in the formal style that we'll see in, the, in this book for all the Buddhist schools and the, and the non-Buddhist schools. You know, you could pick one of the Hindu theistic schools, non-Buddhist theistic schools, and sort of model it off of that and create one for uh, Judaism or Islam or uh, Christianity in one of its many forms or other religion. I don't know. I thought Christianity and, and Islam especially um, uh, believed in rebirth or afterlife. Well, you'd have to present that to us. Yeah, I mean, it's a hallmark of Christianity and Islam. I know, I don't know about Islam, but I know in Christianity it was a hallmark until the Council of Constantinople in about the third century of the Common Era. He outlawed it. <laughs> Check my facts. Back check. Yeah, I don't know, but rebirth uh, or we're not talking about birth in heaven. Well, that's not really that, rebirth. That's the fine. Yeah, that's the fine point. So. so, is there a specific definition of reincarnation that you are? Right. In other words, are we imposing the Buddhist definition of reincarnation? Well, reincarnation is you're born as a young being. Right. You know, when you go to heaven, it's, you don't like start over as a baby. Right, but what I'm saying is, what is the definition by which we? Are I don't, I'm not setting any definition. You can create whatever definition you want. Right. Well, that's in your, your tenant system, I mean, put together are, your tenant. There are notions system. of what happens after death, and so the question of whether you, how you, what term you use for it, anyway. Yeah, you, you just set that out in your tenet system. You could also make up a religion would be really cool. <laughs> Somebody should take like some of the you know, Zoroastrian and all of those. Yeah, yeah, just like, yeah, Zor do, uh, get Zoroastrianism and just call it something else. Nobody will notice. <laughs> okay, that's your homework assignment you make them up? Sure, you know, like if you can like, like present... You mean from, like I did for my music class when they wanted us to present on a composer and I didn't do it, so then I at the last minute made one up? Yeah, I like that. That's good. 
that's creativity desperation necessity necessity is the greatest teacher right yes yeah, so just make something up as long as you have coherent tenets that you can present uh, let's see the next part of the chapter goes on to offer an account of the evolution of the religions that have philosophy blah 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 Oh, the, uh, here, the traditional Buddhist creation story that occurs most famously in a Pali Sutta called Account of Origin, Agana, Aganya Sutta. Here, after beings are reborn as humans in a newly formed world, in human society is established, a group of people renounce that society. They begin meditating and develop supersensory knowledge, Abhishnya. As the text says, these people were called sages, rishi. Among them, many attained supersensory knowledge and trained in logic using their own intellectual analysis to compose treatises. I presented the paths for the attainments of high rebirth and liberation, set forth reasons that proved them based on that various philosophies arose, based on their experience of meditation and supersensory knowledge and their ability then, based on those, to develop logic. They came up with various philosophies, and then a cool description. Then we have the historical account, and let's see. Then it turns to the on the bottom of the page the term, Sanskrit term for tenets, sadanta. Um, what's the difference between sadanta and darshana? On page thirty-two, darshana's view. Uh, let's see. Then uh, he doesn't explain it. The text, if we get there, will interesting discussion between the difference between a Buddhist and a non-Buddhist. Note in passing that the, the Tibetan terms for these are insiders and outsiders. <laughs> they were outside the teachings of the Buddha. In Sanskrit Buddhism, non-Buddhists are referred to as tirtikas. Heretics is a misleading translation. In this case, non-Buddhist teachers were not former Buddhists, which is what a heretic would be. Although Tirtika is sometimes translated as forder, and the present volume is left untranslated. It, apparently, it technically, literally means forder, meaning like the, the forder of a, fording a river. Strange term. Differences between Buddhists and non-Buddhists, there's uh, taking refuge in the Three Jewels, is what is said to literally define becoming a Buddhist. Or is it holding the four marks that creates a Buddhist? There's a uh, dispute about that. Uh, let's see, at the bottom of the page, the chapter concludes with a lengthy, lengthy section called How the Texts that Collect and Set Forth. The different Indian schools of tenets arose, and it goes through basically what Donald Lopez went through before, which he goes through a little bit again. And then he sort of sums up which schools are covered and which schools weren't, and uh, talks about how very few of the schools survived to the to the present. Only uh, Jainism and Vedanta, most prominently. And uh, it goes through the variety of different schools presented. And oh, so this reading goes to 35, not 34. I'm so very sorry about that. 
and then there's how many different views so in 34 this is not to say that there are not interesting philosophical questions raised in the buddhist representation of their opponents oh wait wait uh on the bottom of the last page although the positions on the bottom of page 33 the positions that these teachers espouse in buddhist texts likely exist that they themselves are most often portrayed as stock characters and probably often traveling as a group often seeming to provide comic relief meaning like a group of non-buddhist teachers of different different schools as a group often seeming to provide comic relief rather than serious philosophical disputation they're always challenging the buddha and always being defeated by him most famously by his miracle at shravasti anyone remember what the incredible miracle the buddha did at shravasti was sort of one of those things that i guess he had to be there but uh at Shravasti, he rose up into the sky uh, to a height of seven plantain trees, which apparently is like a standard height, because you see that height mentioned in a number of different places. Like Tilopa does this when he is discovered to not be just your average sesame grinder by his, his uh, patron. And uh, then the Buddha emanated flames from the bottom part of his body and water from the top part for a while and then he reversed it and they emanated water from the bottom part and flames from the top part and that was said to be the most difficult miracle was to emanate two opposing elemental forces from your body at the same time and then he, uh, he also explained how this was a very rare occasion and that he was the only one that is allowed to display miracles. Nobody else should display miracles. Yeah, I was going to say he actually did a show-off thing, huh? He did a show-off thing. And he said this was not a common thing, but only on certain occasions. So interesting philosophical questions. There's the well-known 62 views that, the views in the Pali discourse, Netta Brahma, Brahmajala Sutra, Sutta. And uh, <clears throat> where we see the phrase eel wigglers, which is a literal term for equivitators. <laughs> uh, then there's Bhava Vivek and his blaze of reason. Oh, he doesn't give that. Let's see. The next paragraph. They all accepted rebirth, but uh, so, uh, so only later did somebody come about with a proof for rebirth, which is Dharmakirti. Uh, rather, it was something confirmed by a meditator's meditative experience. They all had uh, very advanced meditative experiences and could see that rebirth was true. It's a general tenet of Indian religions that one can come to remember their past lives through the appropriate practice of meditation distinctions are made between those who can remember as far back as 20 40 or 80 aeons of rebirths <laughs> and uh, presumably encompassing many billions of years uh, let's see In buddhism uh, let's see they were uh, 
The Buddhists were in a minority on the question of the existence of a creator god, deity. They were therefore obliged to explain how this erroneous belief arose. In Buddhism, there are many gods, but no god. Many heavens, but no heaven. One is reborn as a god as a result of various auspicious deeds, from generosity to the achievement of certain meditative states. But rebirth in one of the several heavens is temporary, although it can be very long, but does eventually come to an end when the karmic cause has been exhausted. Some gods live longer than others. Thus the Buddha has explained that someone was born in, the, in a heaven ruled by the god Brahma, died in that heaven before Brahma did, was born as a human, practiced meditation, gained the ability to remember their past lives. And they saw that Brahma was still in that heaven that had, they had recently exited and had erroneously concluded that he was eternal, therefore God exists. Some arguments are surprisingly common in Buddhist critiques of the views of their opponents. It's interesting. If 62 views were not enough, there's also the 363 wrong views mentioned by Bhavaveka. Skipping to the next paragraph, they're listing 22 views. The text makes an alarming reference to 570 wrong views. We'll be going through all 570 in detail next class. <laughs> Before we end tonight. Anyway, that's the end of that section. Then we go to page, and we're like way out of time, page 67. I'm going way too slow tonight. So here we see if we can touch on the salient point. So can you give 60, a name yes, of something? You bet. It's uh, it's part one, non-Buddhist schools. No, oh, sorry, it's before part one, and it's <coughs> called it's chapter one, the development of Indian philosophy. You have chapters. It comes before the part one non-Buddhist schools of tenets. Do you have that division in the table of contents? It's right after the introductory essay. Did you? See, what is the title again? D Development of Indian philosophy. Got it. Got it. Thank you. Okay, so for us, it's on page 67 of the hard copy of the book in India, non-Buddhist and Buddhist scholars developed a variety of ways to delineate the foundations of their respective systems. Oh, let's see. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to scan, and maybe you can scan with me silently. If you pick up on anything interesting that I don't, please mention it. Uh, point it out for us, ask a question, or point it out to us. Um, I'm on the next page, 68, goes through different types of schools, schools that do and don't assert a creator, um, existence of rebirth, and the self. The Buddhists do not in any way assert that there is a permanent, partless, independent self that experiences pleasure and pain, and they refute it with many reasonings. Thus, the proponents of Buddhist tennis were renowned as the proponents of no self in India. Um, between the religions that do not have philosophy and region, religions that have philosophy, the religions with no philosophy spread first. People worship the natural elements. 
So I'm in the middle of page 68, that provided the foundations of their lives, such as earth, water, fire, wind, sky, sun, and moon. Such religions seem to have been based on the belief that these elements help people fulfill their hopes. How religions that have philosophy arose when transmigrating humans first came into being here on earth, crops appeared for their use that did not need to be cultivated or planted. Those were the good old days, huh? When people began hoarding the crops, farming and labor became necessary because of that people began to steal and a leader was selected to enforce laws to prevent disharmony the leader disciplined people committed misdeeds some who saw this became discouraged and went to live in seclusion in the forest they were called brahmins among them some had few desires were content to live in seclusion through cultivating methods to focus the mind they attained various meditative states based on that some of them attained supersensory knowledge and magical powers those people were called rishi among them, many attained supersensory knowledge or skilled in logic using their own intellectual analysis. They composed treatises that presented the paths for attainment of high rebirth and liberation, and set forth reasons that proved them based on those various philosophies arose. And this is set forth in a Buddhist scripture called Analysis of the Vinaya. There's this very interesting text that appears at the beginning of the Vinaya Pitaka that has called Analysis of the Vinaya, and it has like this creation story in it and the history of the uh, development of the sangha both during the time of the buddha and then after the buddha for some some period of time according to some histories of any around 2000 before the common era people called themselves arhans noble ones appeared in india and from that point the vedas which are a certain type of texts that are said to be sacred and uh, spontaneously manifest became widespread that became the foundation for various religious vocations such as making offering to the gods at that time those of Aryan descent put other races into servitude and based on that the system of master and servant arose then the forecasts gradually arose among the Aryans those having a talent for analysis were called Brahmins people who subdued and governed the country were called warriors those who performed basic occupations farming and herding were the merchant class and those considered lower class such as cobblers and barbers were called the underclass or the outcasts the Brahmins composed a text that set forth the origin of the class in which the Brahmins came from the mouth of the god and so forth to uh, like sort of uh, sanction this idea of four classes. It's led to great differences of privilege among them. Initially, however, among the four class, there was no hierarchical difference between warriors and Brahmins. Later, because some Brahmins held the position of chaplain or priest to the kings, the tradition began of their being venerated even by the king. Then, because the Brahmins came to be exalted for their class, talent, and position, the practice gradually became widespread to recognize them as the highest of the four classes. From the time the Vedas became widespread, they provided the foundation for training in the sciences, education, conduct, and arts. <clears throat> also, the rituals of sacrifice, mantras, and so forth spread widely. Brahmin scholars with a vast knowledge of the Vedas analyzed them through studying contemplation established proof for such things as logic, truth, falsity, rebirth, happiness, suffering, paths for achieving higher rebirth and liberation. 
and citing these, they composed many works setting forth their ideas. Um, the different philosophical views of India about generate specifically came, first came to be called tenets, Siddhanta. The tenets of the non-Buddhist Tirtikas, the heretics, arose before the Buddhas. Their order of appearance is set forth in various Buddhist texts, such as Commentary on the Praise of the Exalted by Prajnavariman, where it's explained that at the time of the first day, and there was a sage named Kapila who composed a treatise on Sankhya, his disciples are called the Kapila, and uh, so forth. In the uh, next paragraph, Chandrakirti's Madhyamakavatara says, Various Tirtika schools arose among those who accepted Sankhya based on minor differences. Anyway, so Sankhya was one of the earliest of these offshoots from the Vedanta. And uh, there's this weird use of the term Arpad in the third paragraph. It says, according to an explanation in the Nirgranta scriptures, do they explain Nirgranta? I think that's a school of the Sankhyas. The teacher, Arha, was first to appear. Bhavaveka says, this is what they say. When the retinue of Arha had assembled, he had orderly transmitted the tendency he had investigated with his own mind to Tirtikas such as the Sankhya. After that, he also gave tenets to Brahma, saying, Mahabrahma, welcome, you have come very late. I've already handed out all the treatises. You take the Veda. <laughs> This Veda. This is us saying that Jane asserts that the first teacher of all Tirtikas was the sage Arhat. Now, when we see this, the term Tirtikas, we think negative, but they're using it here to, to refer to everyone other than Buddhists. Oh, let's see. Skipping some of the history here. Let's keep going. Um, 71, first full paragraph, turning to the chronology of the Buddhist schools, the tenets of founder of Buddhist schools, was born in a place called Lumbini, the son of his father, as most people are, most male humans are the son of their father, King Shudona of the Shakya clan of India and his mother Mahamaya. His name was Prince Siddhartha, or as is known to both non-Buddhist and Buddhist philosophers, Shakya Muni. There are several assertions among the Buddha's followers because uh, the clan of the Shakya, he was, Muni is the sage. There are several assertions among his followers about his dates according to tradition of Theravada, primarily who upholds the Pali lineage in countries uh, Sri Lanka. The Buddha was born in 623, which is really early, passed into Nirvana Kushinagara in 843, sorry, 543, at the age of 81. Based on these dates, there was an international gathering 56 to commemorate the 25th anniversary of the Buddha's passage into Nirvana. According to the tradition that primarily opposes Sanskrit tradition, which we saw earlier, was uh, sort of synonymous with Mahayana. Shakyamuni came into the world, turned the wheel of Dharma three times, and dear bark into the near Varanasi, turned the first wheel, the wheel of the Dharma, the four truths for the virtuous group of five, his former colleagues in the search of truth, or liberation, the holy place of Vulture Peak in Rajagriha. He turned the middle wheel, the wheel of Dharma, of signlessness, signlessness, emptiness, signlessness, instead of emptiness, signlessness. In places such as Vaishali, he turned the final wheel. So in numerous, various places, he turned the final wheel. 
on the wheel of dharma of good discrimination. Vaibhashan Sautrantic schools are primarily based on the first wheel of Dharma, the Four Truths. Madhyamaka is primarily based on the middle wheel of signlessness. The Chittamacha is primarily based on the final wheel of good discrimination. Taking the words of Shakyamuni as the foundation traditions of these four schools of tenets became established widely after the Buddha displayed the method of passing or Dharvana. Arhats assembled and delineated the seven books of the Abhidharma, which became widely known after the Buddha's death. In particular, through compiling the Mahavibhasha, the tradition of Vibhasha became widespread. It's a huge text. Um, let's see. Uh, at many, so although there are different explanations how it arose, the preference to the text explains that its compilers take as their root source the statements of the Buddha themselves. In many points in the text, the assertions of the four great Abhidharma masters, Dharma, Trata, Goshika, Vasumitra, and Buddha Deva, are stated. Those are the great four Abhidharma masters. That's cool. There's text by at least one of them, maybe two of them, that are translated into English. On difficult points, the assertion of Vasumitra is taken to be the correct. And the text general structure follows that of the establishment of knowledge uh, compiled by Katyanayani Putra, Katyayani Putra, one of the seven books of the Abhidharma. So he was an arhat of the Buddhas. It's translated later into Chinese. And uh, the translator talks about another council that occurred. 500, uh, sorry, 400 years after the Buddha passed center Nirvana under the reign of the Emperor Kanishka, which is generally considered to be either the third or the fourth council. Uh, let's see. Skipping the next paragraph, the Sautrantika tradition became widespread after the Buddha displayed the method passing in Nirvana's philosophy was disseminated by the famous Indian scholar Kumaralata. The works that extensively set forth this, he composed, such as the Garland of Examples, Turishtanta Parikrita, Parikti, and the Compendium of the Pitaka Master, Pitaka Dharani Mushti. They're not in Tibetan, but they have yet to be found at all. Another famous holder of this tradition is Shubhagupta, and he uh, composed various works such as the proof of external objects. How do you like that? <laughs> the proof of the reality of the external analysis of exclusion of others. Examination of the Veda and proof of omniscience, which are found today in Tibetan. In addition, the seven books of the Abhidharma, Vasa's Bandha's root text, and the commentary on the treasury of Abhidharma, <clears throat> Bhava Veka's Blaze of Reason, Shantaraksha's Companion Principle, as well as the Buddhist treatise of Vandal Means of Knowledge, clearly set forth the Sautrantika philosophy. So we have all these source texts. He's going through, you know, what are the source texts for the four Buddhist traditions? Chittamatra was set forth extensively in the fourth century by Arya Sangha who composed the five treatises on the levels. These are the five sections of the Yogacara Bhumi, which includes the Bodhisattva Bhumi, the Shravaka Bhumi, and three other Bhumis that I can't remember off the top of my head. 
and the two compendium on Mahayana and Abhidharma. No mention of his buddy, Maitreya. Hello. Galupas. In the second century, Nagarjan composes collection of Madhyamaka reasoning, referring to the six collection, sixfold collection of Madhyamaka reasoning. When we studied Nagarjuna, we learned about how his texts fall into three collections. There's a collection on reasonings, there's collections on um, what was the second collection? Collection on merit or something. And then there's a collection of praises. And distinguishing and spreading widely Mahayana philosophy in general, Madhyamaka in particular. And that concludes this section briefly in two minutes. Definition etymology of tenets. Let's see. He, he gives this quote, for example, at the end of this first paragraph. There's a sentence along that says, Mahamati, who's the Bodhisattva in that text, along with the Buddha. What is the tenet? It is thus. It is that by which yogins stop the misconceptions that appear to their minds. There's a famous quote from that text, which is that uh, to ordinary people, the Buddha teaches in fables. To yogins, the Buddha teaches in tenets. Doesn't that make you feel special? <laughs> that we're studying tenets. We're the, we're the, we're the yogis. Term for tenet in Sanskrit is sadanta. It comes from a root that can refer to a treatise, like a sadhana, a vow. Uh, I'm not sure what the word for vow is, or a realization of reality, siddhi, siddhi, or one who does that, siddha. However, for us, it's. Uh, so the factor of establishing the reason or deciding from the perspective of one's own mind, thinking the true mode of being or nature of things another than this. Siddha means establish, unto means end, combining them results in siddhanta, established end or tenet. This the sense of end, unto, comes up in various places where we see uh, weird terms like the ends. Uh, the end is often translated as limits, like like the end is like the limit of uh, of the ex of an expanse like the universe has an end that's the limit you know and so we see reference to the limits in various other texts and treatises thus the uh the etymology of tenet is refuting through either scripture or reasoning those extraneous factors that are superimposed by thought and then through a proof or thesis about a reality that is perfectly correct for one's own mind coming to the decision there is no route to another conclusion that which decided upon is a tenet. Dharma Mitra says, your tenets are what is established as your assertion set forth through scripture and reasoning because you do not go beyond that. It is the end. <laughs> In some contexts, tenet and view are synonymous. This can be understood from the fact that the non-Buddhist scholar Mandeva's treatise on tenets is called blah, blah, blah. Sarvadarshana samgraha. What is the difference between the two? Usually synonymous, the Sanskrit darshan is understood to be to mean a way of seeing with awareness or a way of viewing with the mind. Therefore, view is primarily the way of seeing a particular object with the mind and stating the thesis related to that tenets are primarily 
The collection of many assertions and theses provided a complete presentation of the basic path of fruition. Therefore, one can say that a way of viewing a particular object is a view, and the complete views of a philosopher collected in one place are called tenets. In brief, they both occur through mental investigation analysis, a variety of external internal forms of existence. Skipping the rest of that. Um, in the middle of this paragraph, it says, taking this, the state of objects of knowledge seen by one's eyes and heard by one's ears as the basis, one states many proofs based on that and then analyzes and decides. Ultimately, the subtle mode of being is of objects, the mode of being of objects of knowledge is like this, even when it's analyzed by another person. They will determine in accordance with their mind that it is the true nature without finding fault. Based on such a foundation, we can make inferences about a variety of topics, having employed a variety of methods of analysis. One then presents a philosophy by establishing the conclusion that has been determined for one's own mind. Sentient beings are of two types, those who have not engaged in philosophy and those who have. The first are those who merely seek happiness <laughs> this life naturally without recourse to a scriptural tradition that uses reason. And second are those who are not being satisfied with just that decide to adopt, decide what to adopt and what to discard after analyzing the nature of things based on a scriptural tradition that is correct from their own perspective. And these last few pages, why don't we leave till next week and stop there. How's that? given that we're out of time. Comments, suggestions, questions, announcements, thoughts, jokes, reminiscences. Um, Barbara. Well, I don't know what made me think of this, but well, when you say make up your own religion, well, I was reading about this place in Florida where they built this, these big, like, condos and things themed on a type of car, like a Porsche or something. This, this, I'm not making this up. And they have an elevator that takes your car up to your apartment so you can see the car. It's just so strange because, like, Florida is going to be flooded, I think, pretty soon. And it, it just seems like some, almost like some strange religion or something like these acolytes, you know, and people, these very, very rich people are buying these places and they feel very happy to be aligning their whole um, being with a car, you know, like, or something. That's and, great. Oh, you, you could, that is very weird. You could take that as your, as your religion that you'll develop the tenets for. <laughs> what would their beliefs be? What would their assertions, their tenets be? Well, well the more money you have, um, that's, that's very, very important to have lots and lots of money and lots and lots of um, cars. Yeah. Yeah, know. materialism. We could, we could all do materialism. That's what I was actually thinking originally was that it would be neat if we could put together the tenets of the materialistic school. 
But, but I didn't really do justice to the description of this. Yeah, I'm going to have to Google this and find it so I can sleep next to my car. I can sleep next to my car, in other words. Yeah, and and it just, it, just the length that these people went to, it, I don't know, it makes me think of like uh, um, Tower of Babel or something like somebody's going to come and destroy it because it's so ridiculous. Or, there was another so one, like in hotel room in Rome, that was forty-one thousand dollars a night, and um, and and it, it the place looked like a mausoleum to me. I would not even want to walk in this place. <laughs> but meanwhile, the rest of Rome, they they have popped every all the statues and things are falling apart, and they have you know it's. It's very, very strange. Just, just a position. Just a, just a position. Yeah, yeah. Bizarre. Well, wealth is a funny thing. Huh? I mean, I don't, I don't know why I had the urge to bring this up, but I just <laughs> that religion. It just seemed like I don't know, like just so strange. <laughs> is that it, Cynthia? No, no, actually, uh, I was just looking up a, a list of the world religions. So uh, I just happened across this one. So if anybody needs a starting place, there's a gazillion uh, religions and subsets of religions listed here, which is pretty uh, amazing. So no, I didn't, this has nothing to do with the wonderful and bizarre things that Barbara's telling us about. <laughs> well, sooner or later, those condos are probably going to, those cars are going to probably come crashing down on somebody's head, you know, yeah. just like that other condo did. It just proves that they um, want to make sure their cars don't get stolen. Yeah. And they're willing to go to great lengths to make that happen. You know, there's the, <clears throat> there's this book by this Tibetan uh, teacher who's actually going to be in Boulder soon, giving the Kala Chakra empowerment at the Shambhala Center. But he, he's a Janangpa and he's really into Kala Chakra and he, he wrote this book on all the different views of the different schools and his presentation of Christianity, Judaism and Islam makes, I looked at them briefly and it like, it made me understand those religions so much better than I've ever understood them. Hmm. Where did you find this? I'll, I'll share it. I'll, I'll, uh... That sounds great. Thanks. <laughs> it's funny this Tibetan guy doing a review of these other schools. Well, but it's it's a kind of a, I think it's because you're getting a, some kind of perspective. It's sometimes helpful uh, to, you know, step back or be or see it from the outside as well. Yeah. And also maybe because of this tradition of having various, you know, the basis and, you know, knowing how to sort out all the various um, aspects that they maybe they're good at that, particularly. Okay, shall we dedicate our merit? 
By this merit may all attain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be the spell, may all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you, everyone. Great to see you. Take care. See you soon. Have a great week. Bye.